0: Oh jeez.
1: Oh, my gosh. You're listening to Aw, Jeez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio.
2: We're here to provide a weekly take on the TV show Fargo from the scene of the crime, the Gopher State, Minnesota.
1: Every week we go over what happened, who's dead now, and we'll talk to experts about the murders, the mob, the music, and more. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for NPR, and I love cable TV.
2: I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential.
1: This week, we're going to talk to Minnesota Public Radio reporter John Anger, all about the real-life UFO case that we think has more than a little influence on this season. But first... Let's get a quick and dirty recap of what happened last night.
2: Quick and dirty is definitely the way to describe some of the things that happened this week.
1: Right? So we open, we get the Gerharts in like full crisis mode. They're basically gearing up for war against Kansas City, and they're trying to feel out their regional mobsters to see if they'll join them in a war against Kansas City.
2: Yeah, and you have to feel like even if the regional mobsters threw their full support behind the Gerharts, you'd still be a little nervous for the Gerharts.
1: In the case of the Waffle House murders, we have a development. We got a fingerprint off the gun that Betsy found in the snow. And that fingerprint is... Rye Gerhardt. Now that Hank Larson has a suspect, he's going all around town with these wanted posters with Rye's face on them. And that face is more than enough to freak out Peggy because Hank walks into the salon with these wanted posters. And Peggy realizes maybe grinding up the body was not enough. Maybe they're not going to get away with this as easily as she thought.
2: Right. And of course, Betsy Salverson, who's having her hair did has some very elaborate theories about this crazy idea that what if the person who committed the crimes, presumably Rye, was, I don't know, like hit by a car in the middle of the road and his shoe goes flying off into the tree. And I don't know, it's just a crazy theory. It might be right.
1: Huh, yeah. Well, Peggy gets that look on her face. She is not good at playing it cool. No. (laughs) But Betsy is clearly the brains of the operation here. She's got all the deductive powers that we've seen so far. However, Ted Danson doesn't listen to her. Peggy's able to persuade him, like, who would do that? Who would just drive home with a dude sticking out of their windshield and make dinner, right?
2: Yeah, and here we get a reprise of the classic line from the uh, original Fargo movie. Kill all those people. And for what? A little money. Mm
1: -mm -mm. So that sends Peggy running to Ed. They have to get rid of the last of the evidence, which is their car. (laughs) Luckily, Peggy has an uncle with a pretty good tactic for this. When he would crash his car after a night of drinking, he would restage the accident by slamming it into a tree. So that's what they do. It doesn't
2: necessarily go as intended. The car kind of fishtails and they get a rear-end collision that they then have to, you know, restage and have a front-end collision. So not, not I, you know, not didn't quite go as smoothly as it used to, apparently, for Peggy's uncle. But they get the job done, take it to the service station.
1: Ed gets it right the second time, but he does end up in a neck brace. Yes. Meanwhile, Lou has followed the case now that he has Rye Gerhardt's name all the way up to Fargo, where he has two big confrontations. And it's clear the minute he gets to Fargo that he is the only one who cares about pursuing this case. The minute he tells local law enforcement that the Gerhardts are involved, they're like, oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, Uh, maybe go back to bed.
1: Right? (laughs) Not so much. So, he, They are no help for him when he goes out to the Gerhardt compound, uh, and he actually goes solo to the typewriter shop where he confronts Mike Milligan and the twins, the Kitchen Brothers. But there's really no tension in these scenes because you know that Lou lives.
2: You're, you're mostly nervous for the typewriter salesman, and with good reason, <laughs> because now everybody's looking for him. And eventually he is found by the Gerhardt's heavy... Who's named Dent. Dent is on the search for typewriter guy. He's been tipped off by sassy teenager granddaughter Simone that Rye had a place in town.
1: That's right. And they heard Rye kind of talking big talk about how he had this big scheme going on. So they know that he had some kind of business partner who we find out his name is Skip Spring.
2: It's a cute name for a guy who has a very not cute thing happen to him.
1: By the time Lou gets to the typewriter shop where he runs into Mike Milligan and his twin enforcers, the Kitchen Brothers, it is too late for our friend, the typewriter salesman. He's not there because he is...
2: Underneath a pile of asphalt. Well, that's what that's what ends up happening to him. Uh, he is buried uh, by Dodd and Dent, um, but only after he reveals to them that he has that the Kansas City mob is looking for Rye.
1: He squawks. He gives them that little piece of information. He thinks it might save his life, but
2: especially since he didn't talk to the cops. He didn't
1: talk to the cops.
2: <laughs> Not that the cops squeezed him that hard, but. He he, he he avoided giving them any information.
1: That is not enough to save your life in Fargo, North Dakota, because they tell him to get down in this hole. He gets down in the hole, and they cover him in asphalt, and all that's left is just this little nubbin of his American tie sticking out of the ground. like
2: Skip spring, American tragedy.
1: This episode was called The Myth of Sisyphus, which, and you were the one who pointed out to me, All of the episode titles so far have been nods to existentialist writers.
2: That's right. So we had The Myth of Sisyphus, Camus.
1: Uh, The first episode was Waiting for Dutch, which is a nod
2: to Waiting for Godot, Beckett.
1: Uh, Before the Law was episode two. That's Kafka. So there you go. And next week is uh, Kierkegaard, right? It's uh...
2: Fear and Loathing.
1: Yep. Fear and Trembling.
2: Fear and Trembling. Sorry, I was getting Kierkegaard confused with uh, Hunter S. Thompson, which I do all the time.
1: So what does this mean that they're using all of these episode titles from these famous works?
2: You're kind of out here on the prairie. Things are bleak. You're waiting for something. And there are characters here who are sort of all waiting for something to happen, right? They're they're trying to figure out what the meaning of their life is. They're trying to find a purpose in the middle of the prairie and in kind of a bleak moral world, too.
1: Well, yeah, I was brushing up on my high school grasp of Camus here, and the myth of Sisyphus, you know, it's a man kind of wandering, hopelessly looking for meaning in a meaningless world. I'm thinking, like, is this Lou? Is Lou looking for answers in a world that isn't really going to provide any? I don't know. Plus, let's not forget that our favorite butcher's assistant, Noreen, then, Noreen, was reading the myth of Sisyphus, in episode one.
2: And lives upstairs in the butcher shop, as you pointed out, which has not yet been a plot point. Right, she might
1: have heard that late-night grinding.
2: Hmm. Oh my gosh, do you think she went down and decided to... I won't even like speculate on what uh, Noreen's late-night snacks might be.
1: I want to talk about how much this episode is turning into a Western. We're on the prairies, we opened with this faux... Ronald Reagan Western, but we're seeing a lot of those tropes in the episode now. Lou Salverson is definitely our small town sheriff who's going to make things right. And when he goes up to Fargo, we get the sense that the urban city, I mean, as much as you want to call Fargo an urban city at this point, has corrupted people. It's made them lose their sense of right. And it takes our small town Minnesota sheriff walking in and saying, hey, I stick to my morals, I stick to my guns, we're going to get to the bottom of this Gerhardt mix-up.
0: I says, I'm the one who found the gun, so you should be talking to me. And I'm from out of town, so forgive me if I should be terrified, but in Minnesota, when a police officer says talk, you talk.
3: You want to dance?
0: Let's dance. Ben, you need to teach your friends some manners?
3: How about Mike
0: Milligan out of Kansas City? Nor we can find him? Pretty sure he's looking for your brother, too.
2: This episode makes Minnesota look so good. You know, because up in Fargo, it looks like the cops are totally like in the pocket of the mobsters that, you know, everything is basically lawless and bleak and you in Minnesota well things may be bleak but we know right from wrong and you know another western theme that is uh, is coming up in this series is the idea of, of a kind of a moral code right and social ties that are as important than or even more important than what the letter of the law is we're seeing, especially in this episode, a lot of negotiations among characters who are pointing guns at each other and sort of wondering who's going to pull the trigger and when. What do I think I can get away with? What do I want to live with? You know, where do my loyalties lie? This is a big theme of westerns.
1: And one of the th- most interesting characters who I think we got a lot more insight into tonight, in terms of where their allegiances lie, is Simone Gerhardt. She's the daughter of Dodge. She's Floyd's granddaughter. And Dodd, we've known from the beginning, is a woman hater and his daughters do not, they're not exempt from that hatred. He slaps her around. He wants her to go away. He basically thinks she's dirt, but she's determined to help in this this crooked family business. And I'm kind of wondering, who is she going to side with when things get even more grim than they are now?
2: Yeah, well, and being ignored can have its advantages in some circumstances because you learn things that people may not realize you know. We've already seen the benefits of what she's learned about what her uncle Rye was up to in town, and uh, there could be other things that she knows or learns as the series develops.
1: Right, and she and Dent have this odd rapport when they're out hunting for Rye, and Dent is another one where we don't know where his allegiances lie. Like, he was on a mission from Floyd to find Rye, but then Dodd said... If you find him, tell me first. I'm not sure who he's really working for at this point.
2: Yeah, I think they, that Dent and Simone kind of made a great pair because they're both kind of marginalized characters in the world of the Gerharts. You know, the Gerharts, it's about, you know, the the father and the sons and the grandfather. But now we're seeing, obviously, the mother, Floyd, having an increasingly important role in the family. And now there's the granddaughter coming in. And also Dent, who seems to be sort of regarded by everybody as just kind of a hired gun but uh, clearly, is integral to the life of the family, and uh, will have an increasingly important role. I'm guessing as the series progresses.
1: A hired gun with a weird little backstory that we only got a flash of. We see like a young Dent in I'm, what I'm assuming is a reservation school, watching a magician pull a rabbit out of his hat.
2: That's right, and that uh, then we we cut to Dent kind of caressing a rabbit <laughs> that uh, he then proceeds to butcher.
1: He did eat the rabbit's heart, right? Later yeah. in the kitchen, that's what was happening there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So was
2: he cruel or pragmatic? I don't know. Ask the existentialists.
0: i mean soda cup.
1: One of my favorite moments from last night was when Mike Milligan puts his finger right on the concept of Minnesota Nice. It's in that showdown when Lou walks into the typewriter shop and the Kitchen Brothers are there. Mike Milligan's there.
0: I like him. I like you. met another fellow from Minnesota yesterday. Big guy. Sheriff, I think. I liked him, too. We're very friendly people. No. That's not it. Pretty unfriendly, actually. But it's the way you're unfriendly. How you're so polite about it. Like you're doing me a favor. Well, this has been enjoyable. But I better get going.
1: I... I love Mike Milligan's interpretation of Minnesota Nice.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, something that... You got to love being from Minnesota about the series, despite the fact that it's named after a city in North Dakota, which has long frustrated Minnesotans that you've got one of the best movies ever to be set in Minnesota is actually named after Fargo. But in this series, we're getting this like codification of what Minnesota nice is and what it means to be from Minnesota, even in situations where, you know, these are all you know, Western Minnesota, Northern South Dakota, you know, Eastern North Dakota. It's all the same region of the country and the big picture. And yet the characters are all acting like the state. Lines are extremely meaningful. You know, you say the lines like, I'm going to make sure you get out of this state. And it's like, oh, I'm going to go up to Fargo. And every time that a character travels from one of these locations to the next, it's treated with great significance. And everybody knows where they're from and what that means, which is sometimes the way we think about the world, whether or not we should.
1: Right. We like to draw our lines.
2: For example, if you're from Wisconsin... I mean, you know, just because that's 15 minutes from St. Paul doesn't mean it's not a totally different world and we don't think about you totally differently. Don't with anger all due respect, our Wisconsin with listeners. All due don't respect. anger
1: them. Okay, we have got to talk about the aliens. This makes me seem like a fervent UFO believer, but the aliens, the aliens are coming.
2: Yeah. So I think the big question now, the aliens are coming, the aliens are here. So the aliens have been in every episode so far. There's no question. There's nothing. So there is the War of the Worlds reference. The aliens are part of the series. The question is, are they or are they not a red herring?
1: But they're dropping so many references. Just in this episode alone, we had them talking about how the typewriters were like spaceships. One of the Kitchen Brothers, when he comes out of the bathroom, is toting a UFO magazine. Later, in the car, Dent's listening to the radio, and they say, Little green men. And then, of course, we have this great speech from this man hanging out at the gas lines when Lou pulls into Philippa's tank.
0: Rapid fire. Some round, some oval. <laughs> What's that, friend? Circular patterns. Unnatural. right? <laughs> Hovering in the sky. They come only in the odd months. The visitors. Always in sets of three. Such a night was two nights past. Reports from Mankato to Vermillion. Visitors? From above. Some say they take you to their ship and probe you in places you don't want to mention. I believe the purposes are more benevolent. As the caretaker to the zoo... Strange happenings occur. They are near. Strange happenings, huh? I wondered what was causing it.
2: I don't know. I guess I'm I'm not expecting it to become much more than what it is, which is sort of a running, I don't know, the equivalent of a running gag, a running reference, a running theme. Do you, do you think the aliens are actually going to become part of the plot?
1: I'm not sure, but it definitely feeds the sense of paranoia and surveillance that's going on. I think that War of the Worlds speech actually feeds nicely if you think about that from the Kansas City perspective of something's watching you, something's coming from another land. I mean, maybe these Kansas City folks are the arrival of the aliens.
2: For all the alien references, one of the things I'm really enjoying about this season of Fargo is the way that all of the characters seem much more human than, say, Billy Bob Thornton was in season one. One of the things that I le- I liked least about that season was how he just seemed, he was almost like an alien, like a supernatural being who was absolutely invincible. He'd get away with anything he wanted. There were never any consequences. I mean, sure, at the very end, you know, things take a turn. But for most of the series, every time he was on, I was like, oh, right, whatever he wanted, to do is just going to get away with. Whereas this season, there's no one character who's that invincible. Every character has their strengths and has their vulnerabilities. And uh, so it makes, it's made this season overall much more interesting for me than last season.
1: Right. There's much less of a clear definition between good and evil, which I think is part of the Western trope again, right? Everyone... On the Prairie has a little bit of good and a little bit of evil.
2: Antiheroes have become such an important part of the cable TV landscape or the sort of art TV landscape from Don Draper on down that... It seems only natural that this series is absolutely full of anti-heroes and the Gerhards are kind of kind of turning into the great anti-heroes of this season because they're they're evil. They kill people. They're the cops want to get them, and we wouldn't be sad if the cops got most of the Gerhards. And yet we see the Gerhards sort of caught between the authorities and between the Kansas City mob, and you almost. You almost develop a little bit of a sense of, if not quite sympathy, maybe empathy. Like, you you sort of feel what it might be like to be in the Gerhardt's shoes.
1: I think the Gerhardt grandson essentially got a target put on his back in this most recent episode. I mean, he's sitting at the table. His father, Bear, tells him he needs to pack up and go back to school. And he says, like, no, I want to help with the family business. I want to be involved said like no you got to get an education you got to get out of this but he doesn't want to go so not counting the bunny the body count is now at 6 who do you think's going down next
2: i think it's getting to be time for him to take out a character who we don't expect to go right i the skip spring was it was a pretty obvious you know he was he was running between people who wanted to do him harm. So, and we, and we don't, we're not going to miss him too much, but so if I had to say, okay, if I, if a character who we feel sympathetic to is going to go next. So, well, we could talk about Betsy, who is certainly an extremely sympathetic character, very smart. We're already, you know, feel for her because we know she's suffering from cancer and has a you know young child. And I think that's sort of setting us up to think like, Oh, they wouldn't be so cruel to take out Betsy plus the fact that we know that Betsy is potentially has a fatal illness that having her die by by means of violence before her natural time has come would seem to be against what the show is setting us up to expect we are being set up to expect sort of a bedside scene but we could be surprised There's certainly a number of people now who might uh, find it convenient to have a little less Betsy in the world
1: Betsy might be too smart for her own good I'm on the firm team that Peggy has a big bad streak and I could kind of see her taking out Betsy after that salon scene.
2: Oh what would be the what would be the means if you were if you were Peggy how would you how would you go for Betsy?
1: Well she's already nailed someone with a car so she needs a new method now.
2: Maybe some horrific implement from the uh hair salon?
1: Oh not the scissors!
2: Or the hair dryer? I don't know how you can kill someone with a hair dryer but...
1: Cable TV can find a way. So the second season of Fargo, of course, is set in 1979 and we've got all the 70s hallmarks so far. We've got feathered hair, leisure suits, etc. But there's also something that's a very specific Minnesota hallmark of the 70s, UFOs. By episode 3, we've seen lights in the sky, we've heard all this talk about alien visitors, and that's likely all based on a real-life story about Val Johnson, a sheriff's deputy who had an experience while driving his patrol car near Warren, Minnesota in 1979. John Enger, a reporter for Minnesota Public Radio, recently caught up with Val to talk about what really happened that night. John, thanks for joining me. Hey, you're welcome. This story has turned into a little bit of an urban legend, but I want to get down to the truth. Can you talk about who Val Johnson is and what happened to him that night?
0: Okay, so uh, previous to August 27, 1979, Val Johnson was basically a, just a super regular guy. He was a deputy in a very rural Farming area, so he wasn't kicking down a lot of doors. He chewed tobacco, had a lot of kids, and uh, that night in '79, he may or may not have run over a UFO with his squad car. And now, of course, he's sort of a folk hero,
1: and that car's actually in a museum, right?
0: Yeah, it's in the the Warren County Museum, and I actually got started looking into it because uh, that's my wife's hometown, and I was there for a for a, the the county fair, and there it was, and. Of course I had to look into it.
1: And the plaque just reads UFO car?
0: Yeah, <laughs> with periods between the U, F, and O. Yeah.
1: That just seems like it's it's begging to be looked into it. So you looked into it and you tracked down Val Johnson, right? I,
0: I did. I found him. And of course, if you talk to people about Val Johnson, it sounds like he's really hard to find. Like the nearest reference I could find to where he was is, is a reference in the the Pioneer Press years ago that said we think think he's living somewhere in Wisconsin. Uh, But actually, he's just in the white pages. You can just look him up.
1: So you just looked him up in the phone book?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I did.
1: So here's this guy who was at the center of a UFO controversy 36 years ago, and now he's just living quietly in Wisconsin?
0: Yeah, he's retired, lives with his wife in Eclair. He's only a couple blocks away from his grandkids yeah about as normal as you can get,
1: and he told you what happened to him that night,
0: yeah, he did, and I also read some some police reports um so I confirmed most of what he said and uh yeah it's it's uh the basics of the story, aside from all the debate on online is is that at about two in the morning he saw a light on a rural stretch of highway, drove towards it, and uh suddenly he was in the car with him, and half an hour later he's waking up in the ditch with burns around his eyes and uh the headlights of his Ford LTD smashed and the windshield smashed and the radio antenna bent back. And actually my favorite detail here is that his wristwatch and the dashboard clock were both ticking 14 minutes slow. I just think that's an amazing detail. Here's how Val describes it.
3: Saw this very bright light off in the distance, but it could be a, a, a semi with uh, engine trouble or an aircraft that had d- difficulty and it landed on that straight stretch of road. So I went to investigate, and after I had accelerated towards its location, uh, the light came up and joined me in the car, and uh, I, it hit me like a 200-pound pillow in the face. And that's uh, that's basically the, the beginning of the incident. Everything past that point is uh, covered by the evidence found at the scene and the evidence that is manifest on the vehicle, and... Uh, After that, then there was a lot of discussion, and uh, quite frankly, there were other stories that came to me from the area of people who had experienced unusual circumstances along the Red River of the North there uh, prior to my experience. So uh, that's basically what it was, John. uh, What more can I say?
1: And his story has kind of been picked up by UFO enthusiasts. It's become like one of the top pieces of evidence, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I talked to a lot of UFO believers when I was looking into the case. Uh, Way too many, actually. I did a really deep dive. But probably the most qualified guy, uh, a guy named uh, Jerome Clark, who actually does live in Minnesota as well, he wrote the UFO Encyclopedia back in the 90s. You can actually still buy that on Amazon, although it's really expensive. It's like $130. Um, But he said that What happened to Val Johnson is still one of the top 10 most important encounters in in history, actually.
1: So what is it about this incident that gets UFO enthusiasts excited? Why is it in the top 10 most influential incidents?
0: I asked Jerome about that, and what he said was there are a lot of reported incidences, uh, even more unreported kind of encounters people, will see something strange, but they don't say anything about it. But there are a very small number that are both talked about and also investigated and have physical uh, evidence. This car was actually kind of busted up, and there were actual dents they could measure and and uh, you know measure the angles of the bent antenna and try to figure out why the watches were slow. There was kind of actual evidence there, which is very rare, apparently.
1: After Val hits this light and he wakes up in the ditch... What happens next? How do they start trying to figure out what happened? How did it become this UFO story?
0: That's that's kind of an interesting story. I mean, he wakes up...
3: And I just called in my location, and I says, I don't know what in the world happened, or I guess they use, I guess they use a mild profanity, so I don't know what the hell happened out here.
0: The, the sheriff shows up, uh, some law enforcement shows up, but very quickly they're stumped by what happened. They can't explain it. So they actually called in some UFO researchers from the UFO Center in Chicago, and those guys pick it apart and they bring in experts and, and none of them can really explain what happened.
1: But it becomes national headlines. I mean, they have Val Johnson on Good Morning America, right? The whole country is talking about what happened to Val in his car.
0: Yeah, for about a year, Val said his phone didn't really stop ringing.
1: Now it's just the cars at a small town museum with a little plaque and no explanation. But what does he think he hit?
0: He will not comment on that. He, he doesn't draw any conclusions. He figures it's unexplainable, and uh, that's good enough for him.
3: There was a lot of uh, discussion and conjecture and, and uh, ideas that were put forth, and uh, that's fine. Everyone is entitled to their opinions. But uh, I really have no definitive answer, John, as to what truly happened out there. A lot of people are uh, attributing this to some sort of UFO account. I don't know, because... Uh, from the time that I that my vehicle was struck till uh, I made a statement on tape at the Marshall County Sheriff's Department office, uh, I really, really don't know uh, what happened. And uh, the evidence speaks for itself, John.
1: Now, some of the people that you were talking to in Minnesota about this, how do they feel about this event?
0: It varies. It varies widely. I mean, I talked to my father-in-law, he still farms in Warren, Minnesota, and to him, it's just super normal. This is a piece of legend that everyone knows, but they don't really think about it. And, you know, I'm asking him about about this car that's right in front of us at the fair. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, a deputy hit a UFO and it's just normal, you know, super normal to him.
1: Do you think that because he was a sheriff's deputy, that gives his story more credibility?
0: I would say it does, just because now he's so mentally stable and he was basically throughout that... You can't really just call him crazy.
1: So it's almost like because he's not the one out there saying, I hit a UFO, people are more likely to believe that is what happened.
0: Yeah, strangely, that that seems to be true. So
1: Val was not alone in the area saying that he'd seen something strange that night or that month. There were other reports, right?
0: There were. Val told me they talked to two or three other people that had seen sort of strange lights in that Red River Valley area.
1: And how does Val feel about all of this speculation about what happened to him that night.
0: Honestly, he's really pragmatic about it. You know, what, what, you're, what you're thinking when you're looking for a guy like Val Johnson is that he's going to be uh, kind of a, a crazy recluse somewhere in a tinfoil hat, obsessed about what happened to him. But he told me he really hasn't thought about it in 30 years.
3: Well, actually, John, I haven't given it a whole lot of thought since uh, the hoopla uh, diminished. And uh, it has not ruled my life. And uh, I don't think much of it anymore because a lot of time has passed. Uh, I was a ham radio operator for many years and involved with the Skywarn program uh, out of the Duluth, Minnesota National Weather Service. Right now, I uh, tinker with carpenter work and build things. And just generally, I'm at the disposal of my wife wherever she wants shells to be built. So that's what I do.
0: He's just a, a super open and happy guy.
3: I always enjoy talking to you, John. You're a very polite and generous man. And keep your eyes to the skies, John.
0: I will, sir. Bye-bye. Bye
1: bye. So here's where we're at at this point. Typewriter salesman, dead, paved over, nothing but a little nubbin of his tie left. The Gerharts, The Kansas City mob and the cops are all still looking for Rye. But now the Gerhards at least know what happened at the Waffle Hut because Lou told them that he found the gun there with Rye's fingerprints on it. So the Gerhards, at least some of them, are going to head to the Laverne, right?
2: Yep, action's going to come back to Minnesota. And I wondered if if Skip Spring will be discovered because I we, we were we've sort of been talking about that tie nubbin as being symbolic and what have you but it could also be a clue for investigators it was dark after all when his murder happened so the Gerhards could be sloppy and someone could find what they left behind so that could happen as well
1: and the aliens I'm sticking with the aliens are still looming over everything metaphorical or not so what's gonna happen to Lou if it's anything like what happened to an actual Minnesota sheriff's deputy He's gonna get a ball of light straight through the windshield of his car.
2: It would be awesome if there were like some really specific references to the Val Johnson case, like fourteen minutes in all. <laughs> we'll be watching. Awjz is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Blue Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson.
1: We're live tweeting the episodes on Twitter at Awjz Podcast. That's A W J E E Z Podcast.
2: Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records.
1: Okay then.
0: Bye now.